Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 17th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Germany's defense minister resigns. Italy's most wanted mafia boss is arrested in Sicily. The death toll from a Russian attack on Dnipro rises to 40. A third set of classified documents are found at Biden's home. A plane crash in Nepal kills at least 68. McCarthy renews calls for spending cuts. Tens of thousands protest legal reforms in Israel. New York's mayor says there's no room in his city for migrants. Pakistan launches a nationwide anti-polio campaign. A report says 10% of all new cars sold in 2022 were electric. And Oxfam says the world's richest 1% bagged two-thirds of new wealth last year. Our top story, Germany's defense minister resigns. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Wall Street Journal, BBC News, The New York Times, Al Jazeera, CNBC, and DW. Germany's defense minister, Christine Lambrecht, resigned on Monday amid criticism of her handling of military support to Ukraine, communication blunders, and slow progress in implementing plans to rearm the country. This comes as Berlin has been increasingly pressed to send German-built Leopard 2 battle tanks to Ukraine, or at least authorize their delivery from third countries, such as Poland. Kyiv considers them essential in Ukraine's war effort against Moscow. Lambrecht is the highest-ranking official of Chancellor Olaf Scholz's government, which entered office last year, to resign. Her departure is likely to be seen as a blow to Scholz and his Social Democratic Party after he recently called her a first-rate defense minister. In a written farewell statement, she praised the valuable work of the soldiers and many people in the department and blamed the media for preventing a factual debate about the military and Germany's security policy. Multiple media outlets reported over the weekend that her resignation was imminent, following a series of missteps, including a minute-long, controversial New Year's Eve video, whose message opposition lawmakers considered inappropriate in the context of the Russia-Ukraine war. German media have speculated that Social Democratic Party leader Lars Klingbeil, longtime labor minister Hubertus Heil, and special parliamentary commissioner for the Bundeswehr military, Eva Hogel, could replace Lambrecht as defense minister. But Schultz stated it was too early to discuss it on Monday. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And as always, we extract the spins from the facts of the story. And the first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from the New European. Lambrecht was evidently the wrong person for the job. She did not take the Ukraine war seriously enough and used a helicopter for personal use. Now that she has resigned, Chancellor Schultz may appoint a qualified minister that will help revert decades of neglect for the German armed forces. And we have an establishment critical narrative from Zero Hedge. While Lambrecht has reportedly committed several gaffes during her term in the Schultz government, the main reason she came under fire was her hesitancy to ramp up defense aid to Ukraine as Berlin faces pressure from other NATO allies. Lambrecht was simply under immense political pressure from this simmering geopolitical conflict feel like a lot of reasons why leaders surround themselves with cabinets and a bunch of advisors and things so they can pick someone who's not them to have to resign when something goes wrong, right? Let's just kind of duck away and maybe no one will notice. Let's blame it on this person, send them on their way, cut them a check, and then Mm -hmm. keep moving. Yeah. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now back to the news. 
Italy's top mafia boss Matteo Messina Dodaro is arrested. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, CNN, Reuters, Guardian, Sky News, and New York Times. On Monday, Matteo Messina Dodaro, Italy's most wanted mafia boss, was arrested in Sicily after evading capture for 30 years. The alleged leader of the Cosa Nostra Mafia was reportedly captured at a private clinic in Palermo, where he was set to receive cancer treatment. Messina Denaro, also known as Diabolic, was sentenced in absentia to life in prison in 1992 for his role in the murders of Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino, both of whom were anti-mafia prosecutors. He also faces charges for his role in the 1993 bombings in Florence, Rome, and Milan, and the kidnapping of Giuseppe Di Matteo, a 12-year-old boy used as a pawn to dissuade his father from testifying against the mafia. Giuseppe Di Matteo was held for two years before being murdered. During the decades-long manhunt, authorities struggled to capture Messina Denaro because of a lack of up-to-date photos. The investigators developed digitally reconstructed images and used intelligence from former mafia members turned informants. He was the last of three fugitive top-level mafia bosses to be captured, with police focusing on him after it had arrested boss of bosses Salvatore Toto Rina in 1993 and Bernardo Provenzano in 2006, who respectively spent 23 and 38 years on the run. Prime Minister Georgia Maloney visited Sicily to congratulate the police and prosecutors on the takedown of what her office described as the most significant representative of mafia syndicates, marking a great victory for the state that shows it never gives up in the face of the mafia. All right. Fascinating stuff, Eric. We have some narrative spins on this story as well, starting with Narrative A from The Guardian. Even after 30 years of evading capture, Matteo Messina Denaro still has a healthy following of devoted fans. To his cohort of followers, he is a Robin Hood who works for the poor and corrects mistakes. In his eyes, he is a philosopher and even a folk hero. As one of the world's most wanted men, he continued to live lavishly and serve his so-called family. He carried no shame and no remorse for his actions. In fact, he continued the family business while in hiding. This arrest is the first step towards justice for his victims. Narrative B coming from Washington Post. This arrest is a turning point in Italy's decades-long battle against organized crime as the alleged Cosa Nostra crime syndicate chief Messina Denaro had been on the country's most wanted list since the early 1990s. Myths about his ability to dodge authorities and theories that he was receiving protection from state officials had emerged during his 30 years of evading capture. Hopefully, it will not take another 30 years to bring the next mafia leader to justice. And we have a narrative C from CBS News. Yes, Messina Denaro was arrested, but the Italian law is not up to snuff in holding mafia members accountable for their violent and heinous crimes. Despite protests across the political divide, Casa Nostra's key operator, Giovanni Brusca, has been on a four-year probation after serving a 25-year sentence for his role in attacks, including the one that killed anti-mafia prosecutor Giovanni Falcone and the murder of Di Matteo, while the truth about these crimes remains unknown. The law seems to be working against the victims. What's your favorite mafia movie, Eric? 
Goodfellas. I would say Goodfellas. Yeah. You could have listed off a few different answers and it all would have been good. I mean, yeah, Goodfellas is such a fun movie to watch. What's your one, favorite? I think Godfather 1 is still my favorite. Yeah. Um, I watched that show recently. It was called The Offer about the making of, of Godfather. Uh-huh. Uh, and it was from the book of the producer who originally made it. And it was really fascinating. That kind of turned me back on to Godfather 1. But in terms of a fun movie to watch, it's hard to beat Goodfellas. That scene yeah. where, they're, where they go and they're they're, they stop at uh, Joe Pesci's mom's house to get food when they're on the way to bury the guy and she has oh, a whole yeah. meal ready for him. <laughs> yeah. <I know. laughs> Did you know that's actually Martin Scorsese's real mom? That was oh, mom re- no, that I didn't know that. I didn't so know that. That's legit. That is oh, legit. Wow. And day 327 of the fighting in Ukraine as the death toll from the Russian attack on Dnipro rises to 40. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, Newsweek, TASS, and Ukraine Form. The death toll from a Russian strike on the Dnipropetrovsk city of Dnipro on Sunday has risen to at least 40 civilians killed, with at least 75 people reported injured, Ukrainian officials said Monday. Ukraine's Office for the Prosecutor General said KH-22 missiles were used and alleged the attack was a war crime. In a statement, a spokesperson said, this type of missile, the KH-22, leads to the greatest human casualties because the missile is extremely inaccurate. Therefore, the use of such weapons for targets in densely populated areas is clearly a war crime. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov said that Russia doesn't target civilians and that legitimate military targets were struck in the attack on Dnipro. He alleged that it was Ukrainian air defense missiles that struck the residential tower block. The claim couldn't be independently confirmed. Elsewhere in the last 24 hours, Russian forces continued shelling the previously held city of Kherson, reportedly striking a high-rise building, boarding school, and a children's hospital, killing four civilians and injuring 14 others, according to officials. Meanwhile, 14 civilians have been reported injured in repeat attacks on the region of Zaporizhia. Seven were injured in Donetsk, while two more were injured in Kharkiv. Dnipropetrovsk was also further shelled without reports of civilian casualties. In Ukrainian attacks, Crimea Governor Mikhail Razvazhev on Monday said eight drones were destroyed by Russian air defenses over the port city of Sevastopol in an overnight attack. There were no reports of damage or civilian casualties. Ukrainian attacks were also reported in the Russian-held city of Donetsk on Monday, where two civilians were reported killed and four more were injured. The attacks reportedly struck energy infrastructure and a shopping mall. Officials from the Donetsk People's Republic reported three additional injuries were recorded elsewhere in the region over the past day. In diplomacy, Chinese authorities are working on efforts to promote Russia-Ukraine peace talks. Vice Foreign Minister Zi Feng said at a forum hosted by the Chongyang Institute for Financial Studies in Beijing on Monday. In the address, Xi, tipped to be the next Chinese ambassador to the U.S., also called for mutual respect in U.S.-China relations, stating that win-win cooperation could reap mutual benefit, reciprocity, and balance. Thank you, Scott. Those were the facts. Here are the spins. The first one is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Newsweek. Russia's indiscriminate missile attack on a residential building in Dnipro targeted civilians in close quarters violating fundamental tenets of international humanitarian law. This is a war crime. And the pro-Russia narrative comes from TASS. Russia's attack on Dnipro did not target civilians. Legitimate military targets were struck in the attack, and the residential block was damaged by Ukrainian air defenses. 
Metaculus is giving us our first nerd narrative of the podcast, saying that there is a 3% chance that the regions surrounding the Dnipro River, Zaporizhia, Dnipropetrovsk, and Kherson, will be under Russian control by June 1st, 2023. Turning our attention back to the U.S., a third set of classified documents have been found at Biden's home. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Forbes, Politico, BBC News, NPR Online News, and Associated Press. White House lawyer Richard Sauber on Saturday revealed in a statement that five additional pages of documents with classified markings from the Obama administration were found in President Joe Biden's private home in Delaware. Typically, classified documents must be stored in a sensitive, compartmented information facility. Sauber didn't provide details about the contents of the new documents and reiterated that the Biden administration will continue to comply with the U.S. Department of Justice. The classified material was discovered in the president's Delaware home last Thursday after Sauber traveled to the residence in order to collect and provide the DOJ with another document that Biden's team had found a day prior. The previous document with classified markings had been found in the garage of the president's home where he keeps his 1960s Chevrolet Corvette. These documents are in addition to the ones previously discovered at the Penn-Biden Center in November of 2022. U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland has appointed former DOJ official Robert Hur as a special counsel to lead a probe into Biden's possession of classified documents from his tenure as vice president. Former President Trump continues to also be investigated for his own possession of classified documents found at his Mar-a-Lago residence. Thanks for that update, Eric. We have a Republican narrative on this story from the New York Post. As more documents are found, it's looking like Biden finds himself in the same predicament as Trump, and the president's protectors in the media have less room to differentiate the two situations. The GOP-controlled House will get to the bottom of this, including how much access Hunter Biden had to the documents, meaning Biden's presidency could be in peril. Alternet gives us a Democratic narrative. The Biden administration is being forthcoming about what it has found and cooperated with authorities. Clearly, Biden doesn't want to have this hanging over his head the way a similar situation hampered Hillary Clinton in 2016. Every effort is being made to be transparent here, and any comparisons to Trump's situation are false equivalencies. And we have a nerd narrative on this story stating there's a 15% chance that Biden will not complete his first term. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. I'd like to know more about this 1960s Corvette that he's got in the garage. Yeah, it's pretty nice. I think I've seen him uh, ride that around a cage. It's like his pride and joy. It's pretty pretty cool. I mean... Uh, <laughs> Forget the documents. Get that thing I know. Out. Let's see this. Yeah, let's... These, <clears throat> this is a... Why are we holding this... Uh, why is this uh, car classified? <laughs> right. This thing out there. I know. Tragedy strikes in Nepal as a plane crash kills at least 68 people. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, BBC News, The New York Times, NPR Online News, The Guardian, and CNN. On Sunday, Nepal's Civil Aviation Authority announced at least 68 people were killed after Yeti Airlines Flight 691 crashed near Pokhara Airport. The flight, which took off from Kathmandu with 68 passengers and a four-member Nepalese crew on board, reportedly caught fire and crash-landed in a gorge around 11 a.m. local time near the Seti River. A spokesperson for the airline stated that the plane was scheduled to land at the newly constructed Pokhara International Airport. However, contact was lost with air traffic control and the flight crashed just seconds before landing. The cause of the crash remains unknown, but weather conditions were warm and not windy at the time. 
rescue teams involving hundreds of respondents from the Nepal police, the Nepal army, and the local community are carrying out a rescue operation. Meanwhile, a five-member committee has been formed to investigate the cause of the crash. Sunday's incident was Nepal's deadliest air crash since 1992, when a Pakistan International Airlines Airbus A300 crashed into a hillside while approaching Kathmandu's Tribhuvan International Airport, killing all 167 people on board. Taking a look at the spins from this story, we begin with Narrative A, coming from iNews. Sunday's accident, unfortunately, highlights Nepal's worrying aviation safety record, particularly for its domestic services, which has experienced 17 plane crashes and 273 deaths since the year 2000. Remote runways and outdated radars are potentially major factors for pilots navigating challenging terrain. And Narrative B comes from the business standard. Nepal's rocky and treacherous topography makes it challenging for even the most experienced and accomplished pilots. The cause of Sunday's crash has not been ascertained yet, and it's unfair to blame all of Nepal's air tragedy solely on its infrastructure. The aviation industry and pilots must cope with extraordinary challenges in this terrain, which must always be kept in mind. McCarthy calls for spending cuts to raise debt ceiling. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, Reuters, MSN, NPR Online News, and Axios. On Sunday, New House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, said he would like to negotiate with President Biden on the raising of the debt ceiling while renewing his calls to cut spending. This comes as the U.S. Department of the Treasury says the government may not be able to pay its bills by the summer. In a Fox News interview, McCarthy said, quote, I want to sit down with him now so there's no problem, referring to Biden. He added that there can be spending cuts without hurting key entitlement programs. Last Friday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned that the U.S. would likely reach its $31.4 trillion statutory limit on January 19th. She wrote a letter to McCarthy saying the Treasury can take extraordinary measures to prevent defaulting on obligations, but urged Congress to raise the debt ceiling. Defense spending could be a source of the cuts, with some GOP representatives warning against cutting $75 billion from the defense budget. McCarthy said the cuts would return spending close to 2022 levels of $800 billion and cut from the 2023 budget of $857 billion. The last time the U.S. hit its debt ceiling was in 2011, which resulted in sinking stock prices and the first time the U.S. government had its credit rating downgraded. Markets currently suggest that Wall Street thinks the debt crisis will be resolved. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre responded to McCarthy's call for negotiations by saying Congress must raise the debt limit without conditions. She added that the Biden administration will not be doing any negotiation over the debt ceiling. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts. We have a Republican narrative on this story from Town Hall. McCarthy is right that the U.S. cannot just spend into oblivion and recklessly raise its credit limit. This country wastes so much money in ways that the American people don't even see and the GOP was elected to its majority on a mandate to bring fiscal responsibility back to Washington. And there's a Democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. Republicans are using the U.S. economy as a pawn in an extortion scheme to get whatever they want. The U.S. is risking its reputation because the Republican Party does not care if it crashes the economy. If the GOP wants to cut public spending, it can do it the legislative way. And there's another nerd narrative from Metaculus. This one says, There is a 5% chance that the U.S. will default on its sovereign debt by the year 2024. Israelis protest Netanyahu's legal reforms. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, Al Jazeera, Al Arabia, Reuters, The Times of Israel, and the South China Morning Post. On Saturday, tens of thousands of protesters took to the streets across Israel to oppose Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's proposed judicial reforms. Israeli media reported that at least 80,000 people took part in the anti-government protest at Tel Aviv's Habima Square, with protests occurring in Jerusalem and Haifa as well. The massive protests come after Netanyahu's government recently proposed a bill to change how Israel's judiciary operates. However, Netanyahu has stated that the policy is still flexible, stating it would be implemented with careful consideration while hearing all the positions. Protesting Israelis insist overhauling the country's legal system would allow the Knesset, or Israel's parliament, to overturn the Supreme Court's decisions and destroy the checks and balances of Israeli democracy. However, Justice Minister Yariv Levine claimed that reforms would restore the balance between the three branches of government, arguing judicial activism had ruined the public trust in the legal system and made it impossible for governments to rule effectively. The reforms include limiting the Supreme Court's power to rule against government policies, giving Parliament control over the appointment of judges, and reducing the independence of legal advisors. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And The Guardian is providing the first spin. It's Narrative A. Netanyahu's far-right government's only agenda is to destroy Israel's democratic institutions, cripple judicial independence, foster corruption, and curtail freedom of speech and dissent. In a nutshell, the proposed reforms are a ploy to allow orthodox lawmakers to abuse their authority and help Netanyahu on trial for fraud, breach of trust, and bribery charges since 2019 evade conviction. And Narrative B comes from the Times of Israel. Netanyahu's government is carrying out the people's will to strengthen democracy by restoring the balance between judiciary, executive, and legislature. Contrary to the democracy doomsayer's assertions, the proposed legal reforms would make Israel's judicial apparatus the most powerful in the world and ensure the country's radically democratic political culture remains healthy and vibrant. You ever go to one of these demonstrations, something like this, in the past? I go to them every weekend. <laughs> that's your hobby. That's your that's that is your favorite my hobby. <laughs> yes. No, I have not so, been. <laughs> so it's like uh, it's like in Fight Club where they go to various self help groups, even if they're not part of it. You just there's a protest going on. You just go no Absolutely. matter what it is. Oh boy. Okay. New York City Mayor Adams states there's no room for a migrant surge. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Fox News, Politico, CBS, and New York Post. New York City Mayor Eric Adams made an unprecedented visit to the border city of El Paso, Texas on Sunday and claimed that there is no room in New York for busloads of migrants being sent from border states to the nation's most populous city. During his visit, Adams referred to the surge of migrants as a, quote, national crisis adding that he and El Paso Mayor Oscar Leeser were on the front lines and we need federal support. Adams' visit comes a week after Biden made his first trip to the southern border as president. The mayor said New York has taken in over 40,000 migrants in the last year and has spent $366 million on services for asylum seekers. Adams issued an emergency declaration in October over the migrant crisis and cited the strain it is putting on major U.S. cities. El Paso has struggled with the surge and has converted schools and convention centers to house migrants, yet many still sleep on the streets. The migrant crisis is projected to cost the city as much as $2 billion. New York City asked the federal government to provide $1 billion in FEMA reimbursement as part of a $1.7 trillion omnibus spending bill passed in December. The Biden administration announced a plan to build on Title 42 expulsions, 
while also allowing thousands more migrants to enter the U.S. The administration says it has been assisting communities receiving migrants by providing FEMA grants. Well, believe it or not, there's some diametrically opposed political narratives on this one. The Republican narrative comes from Fox News. Adams is now pleading for help because his city cannot handle the effects of the Democratic Party's policies. Yet he continues to incentivize mass illegal migration by opening more and more shelters. He doesn't truly care about stopping the border crisis. He just wants to shift the financial burden onto the federal government. And we counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from The Guardian. Adams and other mayors of major cities across the U.S. are doing their best to find a solution to a problem that is being exacerbated by Republican governors. Migrants are being shipped without any coordination as GOP politicians pull shameless political stunts without any regard for the well-being of migrants and the cities receiving them. Pakistan launches a nationwide anti-polio campaign. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Voice of America, in the Washington Post. On Sunday, Pakistan's Prime Minister Shabazz Sharif formally announced the nation's first nationwide anti-polio campaign. The campaign was slated to begin on Monday and target more than 44 million children under the age of five for vaccination against the debilitating illness. The announcement comes following a surge in infections throughout 2022 that paralyzed 20 children. No new infections have been reported thus far in 2023. Over five days, the campaign will dedicate more than 360,000 health employees to inoculate the 44.2 million children that reside across 156 districts. The children will also be provided vitamin supplements aimed at reducing infections from other infectious diseases. Polio, a viral disease that attacks the nervous system of children, often resulting in paralysis, continues to threaten the well-being of children in both Pakistan and neighboring Afghanistan, the last two countries worldwide where this risk occurs. Prime Minister Sharif credits his government and contributors like Bill Gates and the World Health Organization for their work to eradicate the disease from Pakistan. He also awarded health workers who have recently come under violent militant attacks for their ongoing work. The campaign was originally set to begin in August of 2022. However, catastrophic flooding throughout the country impacted by erratic monsoon rains, disrupted the delivery of services. Thank you, Scott. Narrative A is our first spin coming from CBC. As healthcare workers and community organizers fight to eradicate polio, they must also fight for their lives. More than 50 workers have died at the hands of violent religious extremists who threaten and kill people due to unmerited conspiracy theories regarding vaccines. Since the death of Osama bin Laden in 2011, These conspiracy theories have grown more prominent and dangerous. Extreme violence is a major factor hindering Pakistan's polio eradication efforts. And the Asian News Network brings us Narrative B. The government of Pakistan and its contributors recognize that the most vulnerable areas are the areas that are the most difficult to reach due to security and are doing their best to address this. The people of Pakistan also understand that polio is not the singular concern. Other basic services are needed from the government to ensure the well-being of people, no matter if they live in rural areas or have migrated. Polio is a consequence of the need for rural development. In our final story, a special report reveals that the richest 1% acquired two-thirds of all new wealth. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Oxfam, CNN, Al Jazeera, MarketWatch, BQ Prime, and Reuters. 
A report published on Monday by Oxfam found that the richest 1% acquired nearly two-thirds of all new wealth worth $42 trillion created over the past two years. During the pandemic and cost-of-living crisis going since 2020, the fortune of the world's wealthiest individuals reportedly soared by $26 trillion, while the net worth of the remaining 99% of the world's population rose by $16 trillion. The, quote, survival of the richest report added that billionaire fortunes are increasing by $2.7 billion a day, even as 1.7 billion workers now live in countries where inflation is outpacing wages. Oxfam, which analyzed data from Credit Suisse's Global Wealth Report and Forbes Billionaires and Real-Time Billionaires list, found that stock market surges, tax policies tilted in favor of billionaires, and rising prices helped swell the fortunes of the richest 1%. According to an analysis by the Fight Inequity Alliance, an institute for policy studies, Oxfam, and the patriotic millionaires, a wealth tax up to 5% on the world's wealthiest could raise $1.7 trillion a year. Oxfam's report found that the money could lift 2 billion people out of poverty, deliver universal health care, and fund a global plan to end hunger. The report coincides with the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum in Davos, which brings together 52 heads of state and leaders from the worlds of politics, finance, business, and activism to discuss issues of global concern, including climate change and economic crisis. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin from CNN. The growing gap between the rich and poor in wealth and income is bad for everyone. When power and wealth are concentrated in a few hands, it usually leads to corruption, exploitation of the masses, and a loss of faith in political and economic systems. The first step to reducing racial, social, and economic inequality is to pour more money into the hands of those who need it most. And Daily Breeze gives us a right narrative. While many have hit the panic button on widening income inequality reports, Taxing the super-rich is not the solution to alleviate poverty, hunger, illiteracy, or unemployment. A wealth tax would do nothing to help low- and middle-income earners. Penalizing high-net-worth individuals, however, would drive out the wealth creators, bring in less revenue, and weaken the economy over time. And we wrap things up with a nerd narrative. This one says there's a 50% chance that the world will create the first trillionaire by June 21st of 2031 according to the Metaculous Prediction community. As we scramble around taking second mortgages out on our homes just to buy a dozen eggs these days. I know, right? Yeah, the egg thing is crazy. <laughs> I actually, we, we, we bought five dozen eggs from Costco. I might start selling an egg or two, you know, on the <laughs> yeah, black market. Yeah, you should. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, a little on the make, side. You could turn those for profit, buddy. Yeah, I'll be in that 1% in no time. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Thank you.